Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. John chapter 1. And we'll be looking at uh, verses 35 down to 42. What we do is we, we, we're working our way through. And as each, uh, there's, there's, there's things that are there. There's truths that are, that are in that, uh, pa- those passages that are as true today as they were then. Truths that apply to our lives, that change our lives. And so rather than skipping over them and sort of highlighting, we're just letting the Bible bring up the things the Bible wants to talk about. We find it's quite relevant. Hallelujah. So, Father, would you touch our lives? We are your beloved son's disciples. And we want to be like your son. We want to glorify you. We need the word, Lord, to cut us and teach us, to strengthen us and free us and heal us. And, Lord, I pray for the grace to let your word and not mine come through. Pray for your love, for your people, for your word. Holy Spirit. We give ourselves to you now in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. We're going to talk about your real name today. And we're going to see Jesus give Peter another name. And we're going to look at what that means. Uh, Where are we? Let me set that up a minute. We are out at the Jordan River. There was actually a discussion in the news um, this past week or so. Uh, about where the real baptismal site for John was. Was it on the east side of the river or was it on the west side? And the fight is between the state of Jordan, who wants the tourism to come around to the east side, and or the, uh, Israel, who wants them on the west side. So everybody's got their archaeologists saying, no, it's this side. You know, like you get better vibes wherever he stood. You know, that's... There is a great deal of that when you get into this kind of thing. If we can sort of touch stuff Jesus touched, we'll get good vibes. You understand he's here? Yeah. yeah. You don't need rocks and you don't need stones. I mean, we, I, what I, when I take people to Israel, it's to see the land so you can picture the Bible in your mind. So you understand it, not so you get good vibes. Uh, you want good vibes? Come forward, we'll lay hands on you. <laughs> vibes right now. You don't need to wait for Israel. No. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, John is, I think, on the east side. <laughs> Don't tell Israel that. And, and I, he's on the east side, I'm pretty sure. They're just up where the Jordan River dumps into the Dead Sea. And uh, what you need to know is it's 80 miles from, the, from basically the foot of Mount Hermon, where the, where the Jordan starts, to the mouth of the Dead Sea. It's 80 miles in linear drag length. But the river itself runs 200 when it gets down under the flats from, from the Sea of Galilee south, it just winds like this crazy ribbon. I mean, back, up, and around. It, it's, just, it's the lowest place on planet Earth. So it's having a hard time finding its way downhill. And, and it it's just does this. Just, it's, I've got some great aerial shots of it. Uh, you know, and, and you see this, this, this great ribbon. And then all through that area around the river is full of trees and brush. It actually was quite a dangerous place in ancient times, full of lions and all kinds of wild animals. Uh, they're living in there. It was the area in the Hebrew is called the Zor, this, this whole Zor, this, this great uh, riverbed. This is where those cities uh, that Lot saw, they're all down there. So there's lots of water. There's all of this. So this is where John is. Now, I think during, when you've got hundreds of people coming out uh, from Jerusalem and all over Israel, coming to see him, they got to stay somewhere. I think they're camping probably along the rivers. I think they're probably in those trees. There's probably tents set up all through everything. Uh, that's where I'd be. And I'll bet you there's even places that people are renting out. <laughs> you know, you can stay in this part of, our, of the tent or we've got a little, little something uh, for, for pilgrims who are coming out to listen to John and be baptized. This is quite a big event that's going on. So let's pick it up here. Uh, John is giving us a series of days. I had said three. It actually continues on, and uh, we'll see more later. The first day is, uh, is the day in which religious leaders came and confronted John the Baptist from Jerusalem. 
the second day, it says there, verse 29, the next day, Jesus actually returns from his 40-day fast uh, there in the Judean wilderness, and he comes back to this gathering, and John looks up, sees him coming, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 35, then, is where we pick up, and the Apostle John says, and again, the next day. So this is the third day in this series of days. John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So he said it again. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. By the way, you'll notice, uh, you say, well, who's the other one? The other one, of course, is John. John never mentions his name nor his family's name. Uh, he doesn't even mention his brother. There's a humility in this. He doesn't put himself in his gospel. So he, you only find out he's the disciple whom Jesus loved, or here's, here he's, he's just the other guy. Um, but he does not put himself in there. So we find that Andrew uh, found, found his brother, Simon Peter, found first his own brother and said to him, we have found the Messiah which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Would you say Cephas? Yes. Which is translated Peter. Each of us has two names. The name our parents gave us and the name God gives us. If our parents took the time to listen to God when they named us, those two names may be the same. In, in our case, in that, pardon me, in that case, our given name is prophetic. It reveals something about God's plan for us. Whether or not the name our parents gave us holds such meaning, the name God calls us always does. Now let me stop there. Uh, how many of you... You know, the, you know that your parents, when they named you, put some kind of real meaning in your name. And, and I'm not really thinking of Denver or something like that, you know. But, that, but you, they named you on purpose. There's something about your name, and it, it reminds you of something. How many? That, um, that was some, that's something in the Bible that's very strong. Very strong. It is a prophetic sense. You gave a child a name for a reason. You named them something. And, and the, when you call God, you name him or he names you. Uh, there's, there's a real impact there. Mary and I, when we named our children, we, we did this. We, we named them, uh, in a sense, we prayed about their names. So Sarah, our oldest, her, her, the name means, uh, it's Sarah, it means a princess. And then we named her, actually a French name for the middle name, Rene. Who knows what that means? Born again. born again. That's all it means, Rene. Yeah, Ney is birth, Rene is born again. So what does her name mean? Born again princess. Yeah. All right, so then our, our daughter Rebecca. The Rebecca was the thing that actually you, you tied between uh, livestock's legs when they keep them from running. But it was, it's that which binds or holds. That's which captures. So she is that which captures, and then her middle name is Joy. She who captures with joy. She captures your heart. Um, then our son, we actually thought we were going to have a daughter for a long time, so we had a really good daughter's name, <laughs> Rachel Christina. And, and then he, uh, you know, we have a boy. So, <laughs> but the way he got his, his name, I was, uh, this was in Oak Harbor when we were pastoring there, and Mary's... Uh, you know, nine months pregnant, and, and I'm out walking on the beach there in, um, in, in uh, Oak Harbor, and I'm praying and talking with the Lord, and the Lord is having, we're having a dialogue about something else, and, and he called me Jacob, which is no compliment. He said, you're Jacob. Jacob is a schemer, 
Jacob, Jacob is a heel catcher. Jacob is always using his mind and planning. Real compliment. <laughs> Actually, quite true. Totally accurate. Uh, nothing to be said about that. But, but being Jacob, uh, when he said that, I said, does that mean that my child will be Joseph? Because Jacob's child. And I, and, and I felt the Lord say, yes, he is. So I knew I had a boy before he actually came out. And so what did we call him? Well, we didn't want to call him Joe Shell. <laughs> so we put, his, his, we put Joseph in the middle. And then he had two, two sisters, two older sisters, so we wanted him to be manly. And uh, so we called him Andrew, which means manly. So we have, but Joseph means he shall increase. He shall increase. So my children know that. In fact, with my own children, I write them a song. Every one of the children, I wrote a song with their name and all. And, you know, and um, yeah, yeah. Oh. And um, yeah. to remind them that there's a promise. There's a purpose. There's something God's saying. Your name matters. And even if, the, if your parents named you Muffy, you know, or what, and if there's a Muffy here, I, there's nothing wrong with a name Muffy. It's a, it's, a very, it's a very soft name. It's a very nice name. I'm just trying to pick one no one has, okay? All right. I get in trouble so easy. But even if it's Muffy, and you say, what's the prophetic quality of Muffy? I don't know, but you have a soft heart. Um, even if it's that, God has a name for you. He really does. And that's what you're looking at right here. This, this, is, this is account. This is quite remarkable. The, the man's name is actually Simeon. Peter's name is, is Simeon. That's the Hebrew. Simon is the Greek. So his name is Simeon. So out comes Simeon. Andrew goes, gets Simeon. And brings him, and the Lord looks at him and says, you're Simeon. But I see Cephas. And Cephas isn't a proper name. Cephas is a word. Okay, let's go back. That's because he knows, God calls, the name God calls us always does have meaning. That's because he knows how he designed us in our mother's womb. David saw this truth and declared it in worship. And I'd like you to listen, uh, read this with me. You know I love this passage, but it's so important. Uh, let's read it slowly and out loud. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. When he says skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, that's poetry. You, you understand the, the, the Hebrew people were intelligent extremely literate, very creative people. So he, when he talks about rot in the depths of the earth, he's talking about when he was, in, uh, he was a fetus in his mother's womb, developing. He said, God, when I was in my mother, you were watching over the form, my formation. Mm -hmm. And you were designing me for something specific. You knew what I was to become and what I would do in my life before there was one day that I had taken a breath. You knew it all. All right, let's go back. This has to be one of the Psalms David wrote when he was an older man. He's expressing the kind of insight that usually comes with age. He's looking back on his life and realizing that he had simply played a part in a plan that God had determined before he was born. Going forward, you usually can't tell where you're going. But there, you come to those moments and you look backward and you go, oh my goodness, he's been guiding me all along. Had that experience? Before he drew his first breath, God knew the gifts and capacities David would need to fulfill what God was going to call him to do. 
In David's case, he was going to be a warrior and a king. So God wired those abilities into him while he was developing in his mother's womb. The psalm reveals David's humility. He's acknowledging that everything he had accomplished was not because he had taken control of opportunities and willed himself to greatness, but because he had cooperated with God's plan for him. I want you to know that's the secret to our lives. When we align ourselves, when we surrender ourselves, when we begin to, by faith, pursue God's purpose, that's when greatness occurs in you. When you are on your own, when you're pursuing your own ambitions and your own goals, it is one frustration after another. Even when, horror of horrors, you achieve what you were going for, it will disappoint you badly. In this psalm, he's worshiping, not boasting. He's marveling that God knew exactly who he would need to be in order for him to do all he had planned for him to do. I, I, that is so good. If, let me say it again. He's marveling that God knew exactly who he would need to be in order for him to do all he had planned for him to do. He's giving the glory for an amazing life back to God. But what you and I need to realize is that when we read this psalm is that what was true for David is also true for us. What he discovered about God's plan for his life, we need to discover as well. We too have been woven in our mother's womb with a plan in mind. We can ignore it, fight it, or pursue it. But we can never change it. There is, you know what I think about predestination in, in terms of, 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 of sort of God deciding who will and who won't go to heaven. I, I, I mean, never mind. But it, that he has planned our lives and ordered our footsteps, that there is a perfect plan for us, is without question. God has a plan for your life and for my life. And it, you cannot alter it. You know, it is not ours. You can, as I said, you can ignore it, you can fight it, or, you can, and, or pursue it, but you cannot change it. Jesus must have heard their footsteps behind him because he suddenly turned around and saw that they were following him. Then he asked, what do you want? They responded by asking him a question. Rabbi, which means master, teacher. Where are you staying? In East, near Eastern culture, they would never have been so presumptuous as to invite themselves to a place, the place where he was camping or had rented a room. Hospitality in that culture must be offered by the host. It was never demanded by the guest. So the two men were politely asking for his address because they wanted to make an appointment to meet with him later at his convenience. Multitudes of pilgrims must have been staying in the area because of John's ministry, so there would have been many campsites along the river, probably even rented accommodations available. It was probably 10 o'clock in the morning. Remember, he says 10th hour. When this conversation took place, John tells us that it was the 10th hour, and he was likely using, in my opinion, the Roman system of time. Because Remember, John is writing this as an old man. Um, he is in Ephesus, the pastor there. In fact, the bishop of all, all Western, uh, what is today, Turkey, uh, when you read in the, in the book of Revelation, Pergamum and Smyrna and Sardis, all of those cities, that's, you, you can follow the, route, the road from Ephesus. You just start walking north and go and take, take a right. Uh, and you can follow right on down that list of churches. He's the bishop of this whole area. Uh, by the way, the founding pastor was Paul. Remember that? Then when Paul left, who did he put in charge? Timothy. So then Timothy's the pastor. And then when Paul is for a second time arrested in Rome and is dying, he is going to die. He writes to Timothy and says, come before winter, bring my coat, bring the parchments. I need you. Timothy leaves, goes, 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 gets the stuff in Troas and comes to him and apparently gets arrested himself. When, when, um, without their pastor, I believe it's at that point, John, the apostle, becomes their next pastor. Can you imagine that church's history? I mean, who's, so your first pastor is Paul, then Timothy, then John, who's number four? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Who had to follow that action? Like, you aren't like the rest. No, I'm not. Yeah. All right, so anyway, so what I'm saying is, he's writing to a Greek audience. He's trying to tell them about Jewish things. 
And uh, so I think he put it in their time frame, and I'll explain why here. Here he identifies himself, no, no, where am I? The ten, it was 10th hour according to the Jewish system. If it were the 10th hour according to the Jewish system of time, it would have been four in the afternoon. But it had been that, that late in the day, it's hard to see how there would have been enough time for so many discussions to take place. Jesus responded to their request by gener generously inviting them to spend the day with him. He said, come and you will see. In other words, follow me, I'll show you. In what could only be an expression of great humility, when the Apostle John wrote this gospel, he decided not to mention his own name, nor the names of the members of his immediate family. Here he identifies himself only as the other one of the two who heard John speak. Elsewhere, he calls himself the disciple whom John loved, who Jesus loved. His mother was present at the foot of the cross along with three other women when Jesus was dying, but John identifies her simply as his mother's sister. His brother, James, isn't mentioned at all, although we know from other Gospels he was very involved. In fact, he probably is down there at the uh, Jordan uh, with Andrew and John. Uh, after John and Andrew conversed with Jesus long enough to become convinced that he was indeed the Messiah, Andrew went to find his brother Simon, who must have been there at the Jordan among the crowds listening to John the Baptist. He told him, we've found the Messiah. And since John wrote this gospel with Greek-speaking believers in mind, he apparently adds, he adds an explanatory note which translates the Hebrew word Messiah into Greek, which means one who has been anointed with oil. And then I explain what that is, and you can read that later. These are young men who are out there at the Jordan River, listening to John, being baptized, hungry for God. And John points to Jesus and says, that's the Lamb of God. On the second time he does it, the two go and follow him. They talk with him for that day. And at some point they decided, no, he indeed is. Andrew gets up and goes, gets Simon, says, you got to come and see. We've found Messiah. Now, do you think Peter really believed him at that point? You know, you can just see kind of a, a belligerent brother going, oh, all oh, right, all oh, right, Messiah, huh? No, no, he really is, come. Peter, uh, 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 Simeon, still, arrives, and it says P the Lord stared at him. The Lord looked intently into his face. Jesus looked intently at Simeon and said to him, you are Simon, I'm using John's word, the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew name Simeon, the son of John, you will be called Cephas. And then the apostle John adds an explanatory note. He, he provides for us the Greek name which has the same meaning as Cephas. That name is Peter, which means stone or boulder. Cephas is an Aramaic word, by the way, Aramaic was Hebrew. I'm just filling you in on stuff. I won't say it again. Hebrew that was spoken in Israel after they returned from exile in Babylon. You can imagine their, their language had changed. Which means rock. Many people have noted that the Greek word Petros, which Peter, can mean a smaller stone or even a pebble. But Jesus didn't call him Petros. He called him Cephas, which was not a proper name. It was simply the Aramaic word for rock. Now, so get all of that pebble stuff out of your mind. That's something we've invented. Try to, try to cope with another passage. He just looked at Peter. Here comes Simeon. Did he put his hands on his shoulders? What did he do? Just stand there and look him in the, in the face? And he says, Your name's Simeon. I see rock. I see a rock. What was happening? Why did Jesus change Simeon's name? Or at least add a new one. As we read through the Bible, we discover that God attached great importance to names. He might change a person's name as he did with, with Abraham, Sarah, and Jacob. At times, he might even tell a parent what to name a child before the child was born. And as we follow the lives of each of those he named, it becomes apparent that he didn't choose their name based on who that person was at the time. Think of Abraham. Abraham, when he changes his name, he changes his name from father of a, of a people, 
to father of a multitude. How many children did he have at the time? None, yeah. Uh, so it doesn't reflect reality at the moment. How many children did this father of a multitude have when he finally died? A total of six. I'll, I'll, I'll help you with that. You got Ishmael. He, he's got Isaac. But as, when Sarah died, he, he married again. And he had four more children. So he's got a total of six. That's a lot. I mean, if you have to take him to a restaurant, that's, that's, that's a challenge. But it's no multitude. Would you agree? So did God fail Abraham? He says to him, look at the sky, a lot of stars. You're going to have children. You can't even count like you can't count those stars. Father of a multitude, six kids. Did he fail him? He did not, did he not? Today, there are millions, um, millions and millions, genetically, but also spiritually, how many would say, I'm a child of Abraham? Yeah. yeah. You, you bet. He has, he has fulfilled that promise wonderfully, but just want you to see, he doesn't go by the reality of the moment. He doesn't go by who, what he sees when he looks at you at the moment. He looks at what his promise is going to accomplish in you. And then he calls you by that name. <clears throat> he, he, right, he didn't choose a name based on who that person was at the time. Instead, he looked into the future and saw who that person would become after he had done his work in them. And then that's what he called them. The names he gave revealed not only his knowledge of the future, but also his confidence that he could guide that person through whatever obstacles might come and develop their character until they fulfilled the reality which, they, which their name announced. Uh, Jacob's a good one of those. There he is wrestling with, with, with God, basically, uh, at the brook Jabbok. And they, you know, they're having this wrestling match. Which you say, why is God fighting him in a wrestling match? Actually, I think God was saying, this is what it's like being your God. Yeah, what's it, like, what's, it, what's, it, what's it like being your God or mine? You know? Well, in his case, everything I do, you're fighting me. Um, uh, but it says that he says, I'm going to change your name. No longer will you be called schemer, heel catcher, shrewd schemer who's always fighting for an advantage. But your name shall be Israel, he who's striven with God and won. And he didn't become that, old, that Israel. Until he was an old man. He did one lion's stupid thing after another. But by the time he was an old man. With his, with his son Joseph. He was a prophet. Boy look at, listen to his prophecies. At the, at the end of Genesis. They're fabulous. He's calling out the Messiah. He, this guy is, is top notch. He's a, a deep godly old man. But boy did he go through pain to get there. He went through horrible depression. You see great agony in this man's life. By giving a person a new name, God was saying at some point in the future, your name and your nature will be the same. And at the same time, he was committing himself to see that it happened. So that person's name became a promise which strengthened their faith and kept their hope alive as they journeyed through the challenges of life. Some didn't see the meaning of their name fulfilled until they were old. Some, like Abraham, never saw the name fulfilled, their name fulfilled during their lifetime. But the promise contained in their name did not stop working even after they died. Now, now think about this. What I'm suggesting is he does the same with you and me. That when, the, when we meet the Lord, he looks at us and he sees who we are in God. Who we've, been, who we've been formed in our mother's womb. He knows things about you you don't know about you. And that's, where, what he, that's who he sees. He sees us from the finished product, not from the present reality. And he calls us by that name. By that name. And then commits himself to make it happen. Jesus looked at Peter and prophetically saw the man he would become. In other words, he saw the person God had designed in his mother's womb. 
He saw what Peter could be, would be, once he became a true disciple of Jesus Christ. By telling Peter that someday people would call him a rock, he was assuring him that he would become a solid, reliable man. The kind a person a kind of person the, the kind of person around whom a community can be built. That was not Peter's reality at the moment. Can you imagine Andrew listening to this? You're a rock. I see, I see solidity. I see firmness. I see reliability. He, he was... Uh, by the way, I borrowed this whole list of, of adjectives. I thought they were so good from Alexander McLaren. He was rash, impulsive, headstrong, self-confident, vain, and changeable. <laughs> That's Peter. In time, he would become the person Jesus saw, but not until he had first failed miserably and been restored painfully and been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about it. He's not really there yet, even at the, even at the time of the resurrection. He has just denied the Lord vehemently. I've just, just read, finished the gospel of Mark. Mark tells the whole story. Peter, because actually Peter narrated Mark to Mark. Um, so he, he admits in there. He, he, he swore, when he said, I, I don't know the man, I don't, he renounced Jesus. It says he swore and cursed. In other words, by God, I don't know him. May I be damned if I do. Can you imagine that? So in, in the Gospel of Mark, and Peter, Peter again with, with Mark records this, when, when, when the angels spoke to the women, they came to the tomb, they looked to the right, which is exactly where it is, by the way. They looked to the right, there's this young man sitting in, in, in clean white robe, this beautiful white robe, and he says, go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter's no longer among the group. I'm going to meet with you. And he, and he did, by the way. The Lord had a private meeting with Peter to deal with this issue and restore his disciple. Peter, Peter really did it. He, even there, when did Peter become this rock? When did you, where do you see it suddenly emerge where he's the strong, reliable, foundational kind of guy that Jesus saw at the beginning? It's the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, he stood up and he addressed the multitudes. And you see a different man baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let me just say, that is part of this very important equation. Baptized in the Spirit, full of God's power now. This you see, he became everything Jesus saw. Peter was a fabulous apostle. He, he, was, he, was, he was just rock solid and full of God. Read the book of Acts. Read the miracles that that man did. They were just like Jesus. They weren't second rate. The guy is got it, but not at the time. At this point, we need to make a very important distinction. Jesus was not announcing Peter's fate. He was not removing Peter's will. He was not taking control of his brain. That's not the way God works. He wants children who love him and choose to follow him, but there's a plan. A plan for each of us which God set in place long ago. Listen. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared what? Beforehand. Say it again. Beforehand so that we would walk in them. When did God prepare these good works that I'm supposed to walk in? Beforehand. Before what? Before I'm born? Maybe before the worlds were made. In God's heart, he may, you know, he's, he's got this plan. He's got these things for us. That, I think it's fun. He's not, he's not making a robot out of me. He's, he's, but he's saying, son, here's what I have for you. Will you walk in it? I have to cooperate. I have to participate in this. I cannot do it. You, you and I see people all the time not walking in that plan, don't we? And let's, let's face this straight up. It's not fate. But it is, if I'm going to align myself with the purposes of God, I will do what he wants me to do. And I will find that I have been wired in my mother's womb to do it. That he literally made me the way he wanted me to be. Here's how it works. God has a plan. 
He knows the contribution we need to make in order for him to reach the people who are willing to come to him. I've got to stop there too. He, we, he knows the contribution we need to make. He knows the contribution you need to make, I need to make, in order for him to reach the people who are willing for him to come. You cannot compare your calling to someone else. Some people are these harvesters, you know, these great evangelists, and they'll fill a stadium. It's wonderful. God bless them. But there are also people who are sovereignly called by God as what I would call gleaners. And their job is to get those souls that, have, that, are, that, are, that no one else will get. And it's as important to God as the large. It, there, it is not a value system at all. You have people that you can get and you're assigned to get. Your, de- your, 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 your assignment from God is that you carry Christ to these people. That you're, 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 his love comes through you to them. Gleaners are people, for example, the, the family member says, my, 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 my grandfather's dying and nobody else in the family uh, is, you know, really knows the Lord. I've got to get on a plane. I'm flying there. I've got to talk to Grandpa. I've got to tell him about Jesus. Mm-hmm. It happens all the time around here. Somebody is, is saying, would you pray for me, Pastor? I've got to go talk to so-and-so in my family. You're gleaning. You're gleaning. Do you think God cares? Look, at God thinks about each person like you think about your child. Mm-hmm. Would it matter to you if they were in heaven? He doesn't, it isn't like, well, I got a lot of people. I don't need that one. (laughs) See, that's us. That's why it's so hard for us to think about. It's hard for us to relate to God. Because if it was us, I got more than I need now. Let them go, you know where. Not him. He feels about each one. Like you feel about your child. And if that person's not there, so does it matter that he's assigned you as a gleaner? You know, Ruth was a gleaner, wasn't she? She, she, Her job, what she did is go out into the fields and pick the stalks and get the ones that were missed by the harvesters and gather them up. And there are are assignments for us where we glean. We're going after souls here, a person here, a situation here. We go into the care center and re- lead somebody to Christ, you know, a month or two before they, before they pass away. Does that matter to God? It matters hugely. It's as important to him as the mass evangelist. Every soul. So you can't compare. But you have an assignment. There are people that you and I have been ordained in a sense to reach. He guides our formation from the moment we are conceived. He puts us into Certain, puts into us certain capacities and dreams. He molds us until we can fulfill his plan. Then after we're born, he, re, we, he reaches out to us, calling us to come and follow him. He starts wooing us when we're very young. I, I maintain he's been talking to you ever since you were a child. Then as we mature, he invites us, even presses us to surrender our plans and take hold of his. From start to finish, he commits himself to be our father, to protect, provide, discipline, teach, empower, until we reach his goals, which, by the way, are never small. They're always greater than we thought possible. This is because his plans take into account the miracles he's going to do. He doesn't look at our natural abilities and then estimate what he thinks we can accomplish. His plans are meant to make us partners in his great eternal work. He asks us to help him do something that will change people's destinies. Our part is to do what he asks. His part is to open doors, provide resources, protect physically and spiritually, bring to us people to help us, and sometimes to do absolutely crazy miracles so we can fulfill his impossibly great plan. (laughs) Thus, this is what he sees when he names us. Not who we are at the time, Not our list of personal goals. Not our pathway that will bring us the greatest sense of fulfillment. He sees our part in his plan. He he sees you. He knows you. And you say, I can't do it. And, And he would agree with you. You can't. You can't do what I'm asking. Unless, of course, I do these miracles. But you see, he's planning on that. He sees both sides. 
You see you, say, I can't do it. He sees, I've never thought you could. I'm asking you, to, I'm asking you to do your part. I'll do this, okay? And then when I do this, you can do this, and we'll get there. That's how God looks at each one of us. When we speak of God's plans this way, we soon begin to feel confused. Because it's obvious that many are not in the process of fulfilling some wonderful plan. Even many believers seem directionless and lethargic. What's wrong? Does God have plans uh, to powerfully use some and not others? Or is the problem that some have chosen to pursue his plan and some have not? The answer, of course, is that God has a plan for everyone. There's a name he calls each of us. But it's possible for someone never to start or complete that assignment. And when all is said and done, there is only one thing that makes the difference. The key is staying close to Jesus. If we'll spend time with him day by day, we'll start becoming the person he intends us to be. Fulfilling God's plan is actually easier than we think. Since God designed us certain ways, doing what he wants us to do is instinctive. We tend to do it without even knowing it. Look, I, I, I had a dog when I was a boy. He was half um, French sheepdog, Briard, and a half a thoroughbred collie. And I mentioned him the other day. His name was Puppy. <laughs> Wouldn't come to anything else. We called him Puppy. And, uh, but this dog was a sheepdog. Now, how did he know he was a sheepdog? Who told him? I, 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 I don't know. But anything that was around, he would herd it. For, and, and my mother liked, I mean, we had all sorts of animals. And uh, we had a whole aviary. We raised birds. I'm not kidding. Um, anyhow, uh, but we also had this white rat whom we named Ratsy. <laughs> I don't know. But the door was just open to this rat. You know, we had this cage for it out in the backyard and a little running wheel and that kind of stuff. But the rat would just do its thing, you know, just move around. But that dog, which was a big dog, would, would herd the rat. It, and it would, be, it would be following right behind the rat and nudging it with its nose. No, you'd need to go over here and then there. Could have eaten it in one bite. Never even thought to eat it. Why? It's a sheepdog. My job is to herd stuff. <laughs> Who told him that? I don't know. It's just in him. He's been bred for this. It's an instinct in the dog. I'm suggesting you're like the sheepdog. You got instincts in you because it's wired into you. And it's a good thing. And it's different. Some are teachers. You can't stop yourself. Some, are, some, some have this compassionate nature. You're just drawn like a magnet. On and on and on and on. Those, so when you're close to the Lord, when you're full of the Spirit, you just automatically begin expressing who you are. So the, the key is stay close to Jesus. When I was... When I was younger, I, I mean, I didn't have any real training in discipleship. I, I, I sort of, we bopped in and out of churches. We went to all kinds of stuff. But I never got solid training. How do you do this? And uh, so when I went to college, and I got no structures now, I would just kind of spiritually go really flat. And then I couldn't stand it anymore. And I would go into this big stone chapel that was on the campus. And I'd sit there about a thousand seats or whatever. I'd go sit in the middle of this thing. Nobody's around. And I'd talk to God. And I'd deal with it. And I'd talk to him. And I'd worship him. And, I, I, and all of this. And then I'd get full of the spirit. And he, apparently he had a period of about 24 to 48 hours. While I'm hot. I'm loaded. I'm, I'm, I'm there. And then I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bomb again. So you've got to get me quick. And, but during that 24 to 48 hour period. While, I, while I'm still. While I'm. While I'm my batteries are charged, you might say. He used me. And people would knock on my door. Stuff would happen. You know, all this would minister because you got Stephen. Then, whomp, down he goes. And, and I found myself in a pattern of kind of getting close to Jesus. And then, shoom, going on, getting close to Jesus. Shoom, and I would go, does that 
familiar to anybody? <laughs> yeah, you know why I'm saying it. Yeah. What I have had to learn over the years is that I, I, I get tired of this ride. <clears throat> and being used spontaneously, momentarily, and then being no faith at all and tired and sad and everything's bad and then I get close to him and I, up I come. We have to build into our lives disciplines. A disciple is a disciplined believer. That's what the word disciple means. Disciplined in that we build into our lives patterns that draw us closer to Jesus, whether we feel like it or not. Amen. This is the secret Many of us know a great deal about the Lord, but if you're not building into your life that relationship, it, it, it's all about abiding in the vine. It's about being near him, being with him on a consistent basis. I got up this morning and I spent time in the word. I was just reading, talking to Jesus, just getting close to him. Why? Because I, I can't function if I don't have it. I did it the day before and the day before, and I do it every morning. You need it too. That's why we teach things like OSL. OSL is, is, a, is, a, is a situation where we take you for four weeks, five meetings. You have a media fast. Imagine that. You only get two hours a week. <laughs> and and yeah, try football season. And, and <laughs> yeah, highlights. Uh, <laughs> I figured it out. Anyway. And then you're listening to the word and reading what you've got to get up every morning. You've got to have, you have time in the word where you're reading the Bible and then you're taking notes and you're doing the, the, the soap thing. And then, you're, and then you're, you're praying out loud for 10 minutes. Is that legalism? No, not, not at all. Nobody's earning points. What we're doing is learning the disciplines so that we can get close to Jesus. So we can start, we enter our day full of his presence. This is the key, and it's what's, it's what's so hard for American Christians, all of us. We've all been raised in such a non-disciplined culture that any sorts of disciplines to us are seen as legalism. Suspi we're suspicious of it. It's downright like, are you sure you should do this? But it, it is no legalism. It is wisdom to say, you need this. I need this. I know I do, and I, I think you do too. So when I'm close to Jesus and when I'm full of the Holy Spirit, I automatically start being the person he intended me to be. Here's how Jesus described the process. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, that means remains attached. And I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Notice the options, much or nothing. The new name Jesus gave Peter assumed one thing, that Peter would spend time with him, that he would follow him and watch him and listen to him, and that he would stay close to him day after day. At the moment, Peter, Jesus was standing right in front of him, inviting him to spend the next three and a half years with him. But 2,000 years later, we can't do that, or can we? We actually have something Peter didn't have, we have God's written word in which he recorded much of what Jesus did and said. So it's possible for us to walk with him day after day. But to do so, we have to give him something very precious, time. It took time with Jesus for Peter to become a rock, and it will take time with him for you and me to do the same. Would you stand with me? I don't believe that when Jesus looked at Peter, he was renaming him. Now, he did pick up the name and use it. But he simply said in Aramaic, rock, solid, reliable, the, the kind of person you can build a community on, the kind of person other people can rely on. That's what the, lo the Lord would look at you and me and see in us the way God made us and the, the, the design that's in us. And he would say, I see it. I see it. Walk with me and that's who you're going to become.
You may be young. This is a great lesson to get a hold of. You are wired a certain way. And if you align your life to it, you surrender to him and draw near to him and begin to say, God, I'm going to be the man, the woman you've called me to be. You will indeed um, flourish. You're designed for greatness. That's not poetry. That's not exaggeration or, or, or social fluff. It's true. You've been woven in your mother's womb to do exactly well, beautifully, much fruit the way God has designed you. If you're an older person, you say, well, it doesn't matter anymore. Oh, yeah, it does. It matters if you and I have a couple years left. It matters that we use the days we have because the minute I align myself with the Lord, the minute I abide, the minute I give and surrender to him, who I am expresses itself. And you are. So these can be the best years of your life. These can be the most fruitful, most fulfilling, most joyful years as you align yourself and say, I'm using my years for you, Jesus. The Lord is with us all through the days of our lives. In fact, Paul describes it and he says, really, for a godly person, your spirit's getting stronger and stronger. You know, the, the old body may be wearing out, but the spirit's just getting stronger and stronger and you just step across. That's the way we're to go, isn't it? So this is true no matter what age we are. So Heavenly Father, right now, as we hear your precious word, as we see our, our beloved Lord look us in the face and say, I, 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 see, I, see, I see a rock. I see a, I see a minister. I see a, I see a person with a calling and a, and a design. Lord Jesus, call us out. Stir that up where sin or failure has clouded it. And if we were to look at ourselves and say, we're not that. We just say, you're committed to us, to be our father, to be our teacher, to disciple us until we become the person we're called to be. We yield to it. We surrender to it. We gladly give ourselves to this. Anyone right now, I'm not going to ask for hands or anything, but just tell him, Lord, I, I know you have a plan. I know there's a purpose for me. And I commit to two things. I commit to surrender to you. That as you show me, I will indeed move forward. I commit, I commit to abide with you, to build into my life the disciplines, the time with you, that, Lord, that I can be refreshed regularly, not occasionally, and that I can walk in the Spirit and bear much fruit. Lord Jesus, just hear our hearts. We commit ourselves to you. We yield to you. We surrender to you in your precious name. If you agree with that, would you say amen? amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.